There are some pretty uh, sobering verses uh, from uh, the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew twelve thirty through 37, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is what I've titled the message here this morning. And let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Now minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to explain and to teach accurately. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the power of the word of God, which works in the lives of people. And so edify us as your people, uh, work in the lost, uh, con- bring conviction, uh, help them to see their need of Jesus Christ and, and uh, the need to respond to him and accept him as personal Lord and Savior. So we commit our study to you this morning, pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as we uh, note the outline above, we have worked through the various uh, arguments as, as Matthew is writing to a, a Jewish audience to show them that Jesus is their promised Messiah King. And as he presents the various evidences, that comes to a point where it's like, what is the nation going to do with Jesus? Are they going to accept him or are they going to reject him? And we see in chapters 11 and 12 the rejection of the king. The one called Messiah in the Old Testament, of course, Messiah is the Hebrew word. The Greek word in the New Testament, translated in English, is... Christ, yeah, Christos, Christ. So Messiah, Old Testament, Hebrew, Greek, Christ, New Testament, same, same word, essentially, just one Hebrew, one Greek. But uh, the one called Messiah in the Old Testament, Christ in the New Testament, would be both God and man in one person. The Messiah would be both deliverer and ruler. The Messiah would be the king who brings the promised kingdom. And we're still looking forward to that kingdom. It is going to come. Jesus is this prophesied, promised Jewish Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. And the miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry were really what we might call kingdom sign miracles. They were confirmations that he was indeed the prophesied messianic king as evidenced in his kingdom miracles. In Isaiah 61 verse 1 we have a messianic prophecy given that was specifically directed towards the coming Messiah. And it says there that the Spirit of the Lord God would be upon him and that he would proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So the Messiah comes with a ministry of deliverance. He's a deliverer. Now, tension was mounting between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the Pharisees plotted how they might destroy him. They had a problem with Jesus claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, knowing that God alone is master of the Sabbath. I mean, who do you think you are? A mere man saying, I am Lord of, I am master of the Sabbath. That designation belongs to God alone. The Jews understood that. Clearly, Jesus was claiming to be Lord God, but they didn't accept this. When Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute, the multitudes were amazed. But the Pharisees claimed that Jesus did this by the power of Satan, who is the ruler of demons. Well, Jesus strongly refuted this blasphemous slander in three ways. Number one, Jesus showed that it is absurdly illogical to think Satan is divided against himself because that would be self-defeating. Number two, Jesus showed their hypocritical inconsistency 
Because their own disciples claimed to do the same thing, and they did not say that it was done by the power of Satan. And three, Jesus' power over the demons was a clear demonstration that he did so by the power of the Spirit, which is indicative of kingdom reality. Well, the conclusion of the matter is then seen in Matthew 12, 29, which is where we left off last week, where Jesus says, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Only Jesus is shown to be stronger than the strong man, Satan. As seen in his ability to bind Satan and plunder his domain by casting out demons and setting people free. Only Jesus has this kind of power. Only Jesus is the deliverer. Only Jesus ultimately has a deliverance ministry. Now, the phenomenon of casting out demons is unique to the time of Christ and the apostolic era in the church age. It is confined to the Gospels and to the book of Acts. The New Testament epistles were specifically written to instruct the church on how it should conduct itself. Never in the epistles are we instructed to cast out demons or to confront Satan in a kind of power encounter. Instead, we look to the Lord for help. He alone is our source of power and deliverance. Casting out demons is shown in Matthew 8, 16 and 17 to be a sign of deliverance that fulfills messianic prophecy. Jesus, the Messiah, uniquely had the power of God over Satan, as seen in his power over demons. Jesus had the power to cast out demons, and in Matthew 10, 1, he conferred this special power upon the apostles as his special representatives, as seen in the Gospels and the book of Acts. The casting out of demons had special kingdom sign significance, and always reflected back to the source of power being Jesus, doing it by the power of the Spirit, which showed him to be the Messianic king with unique kingdom power. Now, there are a few, what I would call outlier exceptions, to Christ and his apostolic representatives alone being able to do this. For example, in Luke chapter 10, Christ, for a specialized mission, also appointed 70 to go out in his name. And they, too, had power over demons in Jesus' name. But that seems to have been a very unique and limited occasion, very closely connected to that particular mission, and not an ongoing experience. On another occasion, a man is said to have been casting out demons in Jesus' name in Luke 9.49. But we know nothing about that context. Was he actually doing it or was he just well-intended? There was a lot of this type of activity happening at at this time. Uh, Was he merely going through the activity of seeking to do this or was it actually happening? We're not told the specifics. Was he one of those who became part of the 70? Did Christ allow this in a specialized way to make a point with the disciples about not having a sectarian spirit, which is the emphasis in context? We're simply not told the background specifics. It's kind of like dropped in there 
and we don't know. However, we do see the connection that this was done in Jesus' name, again showing that if this was really happening, Jesus was the power source behind it. And if that's the case, on this occasion, Jesus allowed it. Another outlier exception is that of Philip in Acts chapter 8. He did miracles involving the excising of demons. But note Philip had a very close connection to the apostles. And in fact, uh, he was one that the apostles had earlier laid their hands on, as seen in Acts chapter 6. The bottom line is that miraculously casting out demons was a phenomenon uniquely associated with Christ's earthly ministry and by extension, essentially through his apostles, who uniquely represented him. There are a few outlier exceptions, but they are not the rule. Consistently, this phenomenon was closely related to Christ and his apostles and confirmed, uh, confined, I should say, confined to the Gospels and the book of Acts. The epistles which present what is normative in the church age do not instruct us regarding casting out demons or having the kind of supernatural deliverance ministry carried on by Christ and his apostles. That was unique. Today, what do we do? What's the answer to demons? Well, it is Jesus Christ as it's always been. And what we do, what we're called to do as the church is to preach the gospel and implore people to, in faith, call on the name of the Lord, who alone can deliver from both the penalty of sin and the power of Satan. And when people do this, they're set free by Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What is truth? Well, Christ was the embodiment of truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 8, 36, therefore, if the Son makes you free, that's how you get free. The Son sets you free. He's the deliverer. You shall be free indeed. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Salvation means deliverance for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because uh, it is the power of God for deliverance for everyone who believes. You want to be delivered? You have to believe. There's no deliverance apart from believing. Now, when the religious leaders representing the, the people, really, sought to destroy Jesus, he quietly withdrew from them, fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah 42 that the Messiah would not come forcefully in takeover mode, not at his first coming, but rather he would come with what I call a ministry of appeal. And that's where we are today yet. The ministry of appeal is a ministry in which the evidence is clearly set forth before the people and the invitation is given to respond to it in faith. It's a ministry in which the Holy Spirit convicts and endeavors to draw people to the truth. And apart from that Holy Spirit's ministry, none ever come. The Holy Spirit does not draw attention to himself, but rather testifies of Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit was behind everything that Christ was doing, and he made the evidence very clear. 
It all lined up with the prophetic scriptures, which these religious leaders knew very well. They were very well trained in the Old Testament scriptures. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And it is for this reason what the Pharisees were saying about Jesus, that he was casting out demons by the power of Satan, was inexcusable and exceedingly blasphemous. Well, after presenting cogent arguments showing the absurdity of the idea that he was casting out demons by Satan, Christ then said, verse 30, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So you got Christ on one side, and you got the Pharisees, the religious leaders of all people, on the other side. And you got the people caught in the middle. What are they to think? I mean, they are esteemed religious leaders. These are the most spiritual people in the world, as far as they knew. Jesus makes it pretty clear. You know, you can't have it both ways. Jesus has all power, power over all the forces of darkness, as clearly demonstrated in his ministry. But to know his deliverance from the forces of darkness, one has to side in with Christ. We do that through saving faith. Each person has to decide on where they will stand. Will they in faith stand with Christ and his unique freeing power, or will they stand against him? There's a great spiritual war going on between God and Satan, and people are caught in the middle. Christ invites all who labor and are heavy laden to come to him and find rest. And there's no neutral ground. Uh, You either side with Satan or you side with Jesus. Uh, Well, the question becomes, who are you with? Now, there were multitudes of people who followed Jesus because he was a miracle worker. And yet many of these people were very fickle. We might call them fickle enthusiasts. Uh, Not willing to personally sell out and really commit to Jesus. They were more fascinated observers instead of being committed followers. On the one hand, the multitudes in amazement at Christ's miracle skeptically wondered about Jesus being the son of David, as we saw back in verse 23. On the other hand, the Pharisees were seeking to influence the people by saying Jesus did these awesome miracles by the power of Satan. So the people were caught in the middle, as I say. What would they do with Jesus? Well, Jesus makes it very clear there can be no middle ground. You can't just stay in the middle. And the reason this was so very serious is because the spirit of truth behind Christ makes it very clear, which is why people are so accountable. Consequently, he who is not with Christ is against him. We must decide. To remain undecided is to decide against him. It's an either-or proposition. He who does not gather with Christ scatters abroad. Now, William MacDonald makes this point. In Mark 9.40, Jesus said, He who is not against us is on our side this seems to be a flat reversal of his words here in Matthew twelve thirty. The difficulty is resolved when we see that in Matthew, it's a matter of salvation. A man is either for Christ or against him. There's no neutrality. In Mark, the subject is service. And so we could expound on that for a while, but just a footnote there. Well, 31 continues. Christ continues. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. 
But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. I don't know if you've had this experience, but as a young Christian, I'm reading through this and I thought, uh-oh, that's probably one I've done. I was terrified. I, I, you know, the unforgivable one is probably the one I had done. You, any of you had that experience? I'm sure I'm the only one, probably, but anyway. Uh, it was, as a young Christian, it was like just kind of fearful. This is, a, this is a sin that can't be forgiven. And he continues, verse 32, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, neither in this age or in the age to come. Now, it is amazing how false teachers can really twist things. Uh, Some charismatic leaders want to kind of say, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, if you speak against our ministry and what we're doing here, you're speaking against the Holy Spirit, and you are really treading on blasphemous sin that is unforgivable. Boy, that I'm not saying anything. No, 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 far be it. Even though I have great major concerns in terms of the theology here, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to be in that camp. They try to back you off and put you in that, in that camp. Well, what is really being said here? In view here is an especially egregious sin. It's called blasphemy against the Spirit. Now, blasphemy is the idea of irreverent speech. It's extreme slander. It's been called defiant irreverence. It is insulting speech against God, and in this case, specifically against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but not this level of blasphemy against the Spirit. Jesus even says that whoever speaks against Him can be forgiven, but not the one who speaks against the Holy Spirit. Now, in view, therefore, is an especially offensive sin against the Spirit. And in context, what exactly was this sin? Well, if we were to put it down, uh, this is how we would define it. The blasphemy against the Spirit was attributing to Satan the miracles that Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit while he was here upon the earth. This exact sin cannot be committed today because Jesus is no longer upon the earth working miracles as he was during his earthly ministry. It would seem that speaking against Jesus in isolation of the Spirit, as it were, was not as grievous a sin because of how Christ came in a veiled position of lowliness. You see, he looked like a regular person. You wouldn't see Jesus. He didn't have a halo around him, by the way. He looked like just a regular person. So common. You wouldn't expect the Messiah to come in such a lowly, common fashion. There was nothing outwardly impressive about Jesus. I just want you to understand that. I like that about him, by the way. I'm a pretty regular, you know, just a country boy, farmer's kid. You know, it's a, it's a lowly guy, pretty much. You see, we already knew that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Isaiah 53, verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, attractiveness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't come off impressive. Unimpressive, in fact. Now, it was forgivable if people initially didn't understand who Jesus was and therefore slighted him. Even his own brothers were initially in this category of people. Jesus was so common and ordinary in appearance 
that his glory was veiled in that humility. So it is understandable why people on that level would miss it. Moody Bible Commentary says this, The title Son of Man was used in context that emphasized his humility associated with the Incarnation. Perhaps speaking against the Son of Man was pardonable because Jesus' identity was veiled. I think that's a big part of this picture. But then, bring in the Holy Spirit and that changes everything. The miracles that Jesus did by the power of the Spirit were undeniable. They were good, benevolent miracles that were beneficial to people. They were powerful miracles. You see what I'm saying? Jesus didn't go around blinding people, right? You're not with me? You're blinded. You're not with me? To the pit. No. We don't see Jesus doing that, do we? What do we see him doing? Good things. Healing everybody. They were powerful miracles that logically could only be attributed to the power of God because of the very nature of them. And that's the argument here in Acts chapter 10. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. By the way, the Spirit and power go together. Who went about doing what? Doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That's the devil's business, oppressing people. That's not what Jesus, he was doing the exact opposite. Healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Along with the evident power of God on display through Christ's ministry was the internal conviction of the Spirit. This is the work of God in the heart that only the Spirit can do. Back before the time of the Genesis flood in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever. As God was giving, in that context there, humanity 120 more years before the judgment of the flood would come. The spirit convicts and he works in people, wooing them to respond to the truth. And actually, as it says here, striving. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, said to the Jews in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was working. They were resisting. The last invitation in the Bible, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, the Spirit says, come. Spirit is inviting. The Spirit is wooing. In conjunction with the gospel ministry of the church, the the full verse says, the spirit and the bride, that's the church, say come. The church has an outward ministry of giving forth the gospel with the invitation of coming. The spirit does that internal work that only he can do. Thus, we are completely reliant upon the spirit to help people see the truth spiritually. You get frustrated sometimes, you can't get through to people. You never will. You never will. If the Holy Spirit, with the word of truth, can't get through, nobody can get through. I love this from the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel, note, note what he was using here. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, 
wasn't just outward words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Note that connection again. And in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So the message came. Yes, there was the outward giving of the gospel, but there was a working of the Spirit powerfully. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5. When Paul came to Corinth, what happened? My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is this power we're talking about? It's the power to affect change lives. People believe the gospel and they are forgiven and they are changed by the power of the Spirit. That's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And what does he use? He uses a simple gospel message. You say, I've got a better idea. I've got all my human arguments. Good luck on that. And you understand, I don't believe in luck. It's not going to happen. True converts are the result of the Spirit working in the hearts of people. I've often said, you know, this thing of seeing the Spirit work, it's it's a glorious thing to be used of the Holy Spirit. It's like riding a wave. You know, I don't control the wave. I just ride the wave. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only He can make it happen in the hearts of people. It's a miraculous thing. Anytime anybody gets saved, it's comparable to the miracle of creation. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where God says, let there be light and people see. This is why the blasphemy of the Spirit was so serious. If you shut the door on the Holy Spirit, there is no hope. There's no means of seeing the truth. There's no way of responding. That is the point of no return. And that's why I think the writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You know, there is this reality of the Holy Spirit. And and, and it's like the wind. You hear the sound of it. But you can't tell where it comes from and and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a mysterious working of the Holy Spirit. And he works through the gospel in conjunction with the, the bride, the church. The blasphemy of the Spirit was not a sin of ignorance. It was sinning willfully and knowingly against the plain truth made plain by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, there was the sin of a high hand, which was unforgivable. There is such a thing as sinning against the truth of God with your eyes wide open, as was the case with Balaam in Numbers 24. That becomes unforgivable in the sense that the person is rejecting the full light of God's truth brought forth by the Holy Spirit. If a person rejects that level of truth, there is nothing more that can be done. As I say, this exact sin of blasphemy the Spirit, cannot be committed today because Christ is not here physically in person doing miracles by the power of the Spirit. However, a similar sin of rejection is seen in Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 10. We read in Hebrews chapter 6, it is impossible, note that word, for those who were once enlightened 
had a certain level of, of the enlightenment of conviction. It is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, interacted very intimately with the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. These people intimately know the truth and intimately know the ministry of the Spirit and yet walk away from it. This becomes a point of no return. Truth clearly presented by the Spirit and brazenly rejected is a most serious issue. And the writer returns to this again in Hebrews chapter 10. If we sin, ready for this, willfully. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. These people know the truth. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejects Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, the person of Christ, counted the blood of the covenant, the work of Christ, with which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. This is willful rejection of known truth. It's not that these people don't know. They do, and yet they willfully reject it. There comes a point of no return for these people. Only God knows where that line is, but it is clear that there is a point where it is impossible to bring people back to considering true repentance. They have hardened themselves to the place of no return. But again, only God knows when a person has crossed this line. D.A. Carson makes this statement. This is apostasy. He's talking about Hebrews 6 and 10. This is apostasy, and it involves a break with what one has formally adhered to. The universal witness of the New Testament is that apostasy, if persisted in, not only damns, but shows that salvation was never real in the first place. The New Testament reveals how close one may come to the kingdom, tasting, touching, perceiving, understanding. And it also shows that to come this far and reject the truth is unforgivable. There is a high level of accountability with truth that is clearly made known. I would emphasize that people who are concerned about whether they've committed this sin have not. People guilty of this don't care. They are hardened in their rebellion and have absolutely no desire for the truth. Ignorance is one thing, but hardened rebellion against the knowledge of the truth is another thing. Paul did some really horrendous things before his conversion. But he makes this statement in sharing his testimony in 1 Timothy 1.13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, and he was, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Why, Paul? Why? I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul says, I was ignorant. Ignorance is forgivable, but purposely, knowingly, and willfully sinning against the truth of the Spirit can eventuate in a hardened state of no return. That is why we are warned to respond while we can, while the Spirit is working with us. Don't play games with the Spirit. If He's convicting you, respond. If He's calling you, come. 
No one can do it for you. Only you can respond to the Spirit. In order to be saved, you must. The Pharisees in view here in Matthew 12 deliberately sinned against the truth made exceedingly clear in the most powerful way possible by the Spirit as seen in Christ's ministry. Such a level of rejection was unforgivable. It wasn't that they didn't know the truth. They did. They just flagrantly sinned against the brilliance of the light that was given to them. We see it in John chapter 11, for example, when the chief priests and Pharisees gather a council and said, what shall we do? What shall we do? For this man works many signs. No denying it. He does many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. You see, they didn't deny the truth of what was happening. They knew it. They just had sinful, self-serving motivations for not accepting it. John Walford says... As far as it applies today, it's not the thought that one seeking pardon will not find it, but rather that the one who rejects the Holy Spirit will not seek pardon. It is the ultimate in unbelief. Well, when Jesus says the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come, he is saying it will never be forgiven. They are locked into an unforgivable position forever. That is hell. Now, the Jews recognized two ages, the present age in which they lived and the Messianic kingdom age, which was yet to come. They did not see the intervening church age in which we live because it was not revealed until New Testament revelation. Jesus continues, verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Now, this is a truism repeated, repeatedly stated by Christ here in Matthew 12, 33 through 35, and also stated repeatedly in Matthew 7, 16 through 20. How simple and yet profound. The nature of the tree determines its fruit. Now, I have learned sometimes the hard way that you can't tell exactly the kind a fruit a tree will bring forth just by looking at the tree, right? You have to wait a little while to see the fruit, and that takes some time. But in the end, the telling is in the kind of fruit brought forth. You see, fruit very consistently tells a very accurate story. Fruit doesn't lie. People do, but fruit doesn't. That is true in reference to good fruit, and it's true in reference to bad fruit. The kind of tree it is, is seen consistently in the kind of fruit that is brought forth. The nature of the tree determines the nature of its fruit. This truism is very consistent, and hence is repeatedly stated by the Lord as a principle of discernment. Now, ultimately, God alone is the judge, but we are fruit inspectors. And Christ said, you'll know them by their fruit, speaking of false teachers in Matthew chapter 7. The good tree bringing forth good fruit is represented in this context by the Lord himself and his good fruit ministry in perfect accord with the Old Testament scriptures. The bad, fr- the bad tree bringing forth bad fruit is represented by the Pharisees. 
and their bad fruit ministry as seen in their blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, I've pointed out many times, even in this sermon, that everything about Christ's first coming ministry was benevolent, kind, and good. He didn't harm anyone. He only did good. And he did it in regard to everyone. He healed everyone. He offered the truth to everyone. And that's in keeping with how the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would come the first time. The scripture says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. John 3, 17 says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Messiah came preaching good tidings, not bad ones. Healing the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty and setting the captives free. This is all good stuff, which is characteristic of God-like goodness, indicative of what the prophets indicated would characterize the true Messiah's ministry. In contrast, in contrast, the devil is all about destroying people's lives consistently. He never actually helps people. He deceives people. He harms people. He kills people. Jesus said the devil, quote, was a a murderer from the beginning and that he is a liar and the father of it, John 8, 44. The nature of Christ's ministry was so clearly of the good God of the Bible as to be incontrovertible. The scriptures testifying that it was God-ordained was so very obvious that only the slanderously evil could possibly attribute this to the devil. And the reason their sin was so evil is because they actually knew better. In their evilness, they just did not want to accept it. And evil does that, by the way. It perverts or twists the truth where evil is said to be good and good is said to be evil. That is devil-like. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. They turn it around. Christ calls it like it is. His ministry was clearly good through and through, indicative of being rooted in God. But in contrast, the bad fruit of the Pharisees totally exposed them. Jesus said to them, verse 34, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A brood is a family. And vipers are snakes, poisonous snakes, deadly, dangerous snakes, full of venomous poison. This was no compliment. These are the religious, these are the esteemed religious leaders. Talk about holy boldness. Christ called these religious leaders a family of poisonous snakes. They work in concert like a brood, and they are deceptive in that sometimes it's hard to see their true colors until they strike. Christ here connected the fruit of a person's life to what comes out of their mouth. And consistent with the truism in verse 33, he asked, how can you being evil speak good things? They couldn't because they were evil. The tree was bad. The word evil denotes that which is morally bad. Satan is called the evil one. Their nature was evil and therefore they could not speak good things that were right and true. What was needed was a changed heart. They had a heart problem. And that's always the problem. 
And then Jesus gave forth another truism. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth tells on the heart. Out of the abundance refers to the overflow, the overflow of the heart. It's like the heart is a reservoir in which words are stored up. And as the reservoir gets full, what flows out of the mouth is indicative of what is in the heart. In the scriptures, the idea of heart relates to the core of a person involving the thoughts, intentions, and will of a person, which is in contrast to merely emotions. Thus, the heart of the person really represents the character of a person. Therefore, words that come out of the heart reveal the nature or the character of the person. Fruit tells. Words tell. Words tell on a person because they are the overflow of the heart. Listen to what a person talks about and you will soon discover what's in their heart. People that talk incessantly about self are full of themselves. No matter what they might say. People who talk about God are God-focused. People who are bitter speak constantly in bitter tones. Our speech consistently tells on the state of our heart. The mouth tells, but the origin of what it tells comes forth from the heart. It starts in the heart and moves to the mouth from there. We'll get to this, Lord willing, but in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Life is about the heart. And what goes on in the heart comes out in the life. What goes on in the heart comes out of the mouth. That's why Proverbs says, good memory verse. You all ought to memorize this one. It's very easy. Short little verse. You could do it. You could do it. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. What's your life all about, really? It's all about what goes on in your heart and then is expressed in the life. Verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Now, this is consistent with the principle just laid out in verse 33. Commentators point out that treasure here could perhaps better be understood as treasure box, the place where things are collected and stored. The heart is the treasure box of the soul. What you treasure, what you value, is really in your heart. What you want to hold on to is stored up in your heart. A person brings out in life what is stored up in their heart. And that is true whether it be good things or evil things. What's in your heart is eventually brought out in your life. Again, this is true in both directions, whether for good or for evil. We see this principle in conversion. Paul tells us that the mouth tells on the heart. Matthew, or Matthew, Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes. There's the fundamental issue. With the heart one believes under righteousness. You're made right with God. You believe and, and God declares you right. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Confessing, confessing your salvation. The order is believing in the heart first and then the mouth confesses what the heart believes. This is consistent with Jesus saying that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The point is this. What is real in the heart comes out of the mouth. Want to know what a person's heart looks like? 
Listen to what they say. Now, again, be careful with this. God alone is the ultimate judge of all. And he alone knows the heart perfectly. But when somebody is over here carrying on in a, in a blasphemous way, gives you a pretty good indicator what, what their heart condition is. D.A. Carson says, verse 35 makes a tight connection with verse 33. What a person truly is determines what he says and does. Verse 36, Christ says, But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Wow. Jesus here gives another general truism. All people are facing judgment. It's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. Believers will be judged according to our works, with the issue being the quality of reward we will receive. Unbelievers will be judged according to their works, with the issue being the degree of eternal punishment they will receive. Idle words are empty words, careless words, useless words, unprofitable words. We should be very careful what we say, because one day we're going to have to give an account for every idle word. Now, I don't know about you, But this really speaks to me by way of application. I think the main issue here in view is the idle words, the blasphemous words of of the Pharisees. But it's a general truism here. Sometimes idle words just slip out, which tells me the state of my heart at that moment. Again, Carson says this, Jesus is saying that every spoken word reflects the heart's overflow and is known to God. Therefore, words are of critical importance. James talks a lot about this. For James, the tongue is a major barometer of our spiritual life, of spiritual maturity. And in relationship with the tongue, what does James say? We all stumble in many things. You know what he's talking about? The tongue. You, you ever go down this sidewalk? I've had this happen. You know, in fact, I used to walk and pray a lot. Now I sit and pray a lot. But anyway, but every once in a while I'd hit a, a little sidewalk and be up. Just look, I'm not paying attention where I'm going. And I'd hit that sidewalk and I'd stumble and almost fall down. And then, you know, I'd look around. Is anybody seeing what's going on here? You know, I guess I'm a one-man show right here. But anyway, uh, the tongue. We stumble over the tongue. And if anyone does not stumble in word... He's a perfect, that is mature, perfectly mature man. Also able to bridle the whole body. The tongue is the hardest thing in the world to control. We all stumble over it regularly. To perfectly control the tongue speaks of perfect maturity. And none of us have reached that point yet. We all stumble in many things. We all do. Note that what James says. We all stumble. And we do it in many things. In relationship to the tongue is the context. How would you like to stand before Jesus and give an account for every idle word you have spoken? Now, we won't do so in a penal sense because Christ has paid the full penalty for all of our sin. But we will give an account in terms of the evaluation of the quality of our service for Jesus. All of our works will be evaluated, including the use of our tongues. Uh, Paul says this rather interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. He's speaking to believers here. That's a context. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Don't be lifting yourself up saying, well, I'm worthy of praise. Let God 
Let God do that. I like it when people, people die and they sing all, this person was, you know, maybe we ought to leave the rewards to God here. This has the believer's judgment of you. If he's going to reveal the secret thoughts of the heart, well, it's a given that every idle word will also be examined because it's out of the heart that the words come. Now, praise God for forgiveness. Praise God for his salvation. But let us not glibly think then that it doesn't matter how we live or how we speak. It will matter on Judgment Day as Christ evaluates the quality of our workmanship in relationship to our heart, our motives, and ultimately our words. It will be a matter of rewards, not a matter of salvation. The believer's judgment is about rewards. New International Bible Commentary makes this thoughtful comment. Quote, a man's premeditated words are seldom a safe guide to character. The unpremeditated are. You understand what is being said? It's the unpremeditated spouting off behind the scenes that really tells the story. You know, like when you're walking by and you say, that was a wonderful sermon this morning, Pastor. And you go home and say, you know, I had a real problem with a few things there. Yeah, we all do this. Often we say things behind the scenes that are inappropriate. Not that I would accuse you of saying anything appropriate just because you're criticizing. You know, I probably deserve it, whatever it is. But, but in fact, everything is openly known to God. He takes note of every word. John Phillips says, when a person is arrested, he is warned that anything he says will be used against him. Similarly, the Lord warns us that our words will rise up against us. Be careful what you say. Verse 37 For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The word justified means to declare righteous or to declare right. But it is sometimes used in the sense of being vindicated or proven right. We're not justified by our words in the sense of being saved by speaking. That would be a work salvation. The Bible is clear that we are justified, that is declared righteous, purely on the basis of faith and faith alone. The mouth then confesses what the heart believes. However, justification in the judicial legal sense before God is always by faith alone. God as the judge declares us right on the basis of faith alone. We have so many statements like this. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sense here in Matthew 12, 37 is that if faith is real in the heart, it will demonstrate itself in our words as a pattern of life. In that sense, our words will serve to vindicate or reveal our true character as God's children. It's not that we never mess up. James already told us we do. Again, the words are the fruit, but the fruit in this case gives evidence or proves that the tree is good. On the other hand, a lost person's words will serve to condemn them. That is, they will reveal the true nature and pattern of their evil character. John Phillips again says, We need to have our incriminating words blotted out. We need God to say, I will remember them no more. Certainly in a penal sense. If he doesn't destroy the evidence, we stand condemned by our words. MacArthur says this, Jesus' point is not that words are the basis of salvation or condemnation, but that they are reliable evidence of the reality of salvation. The speech of a redeemed person will be different because it comes from his renewed heart. 
In effect, words are the mirrors of the heart. They reflect the spiritual condition of the heart, whether regenerate or unregenerate. Those who have yielded to the convicting work of the Spirit in conversion demonstrate that in changed lives, of which a leading indicator is seen in their speech. Those that are in rebellion to the Spirit of truth also reflect that in their speech. If our faith doesn't affect our tongue, it probably is not a genuine saving faith. Certainly none of us are perfect in our speech patterns, as already pointed out by James, but people are known by the fruit of their lips as the mouth reliably tells on the heart. When I was in Bible college, we had a dean of men who was also over the pastoral ministries program, of which I was a part, and this man was named Harold Sanders. He also happened to be the first pastor of this church, which in those days was known as Southview Baptist Church. He was on the scene for five years before I became the first full-time pastor of the church. But Harold had a favorite verse that he often quoted to us. He said it all the time. I mean, I don't know if hardly a class went by, he didn't say it. And it was Proverbs 23, 7. As a person thinks in their heart, so are they. How true that is. The essence of a person's life is what they are in their heart. You see, we all come with an evil heart. It's part of depravity. As the Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The only answer to a wicked heart is faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When we put our faith in Jesus, God cleanses our heart. The heart of the matter, Luke 8, 15. The ones that fell on the good ground, representing true believers, are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And then in Acts 15. So God, who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. The great dividing line is found in the hearts of people, ultimately because of the work of God behind the scenes. As Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. The heart of the matter is that it's all about the heart, and the mouth tells on the heart. That's why Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, it's with the heart that one believes, and with the mouth confession is made. What a person really believes, and what their mouth says, goes together. Now, of course, of course, one can mouth lies, and many do. Many will say, Lord, Lord, on Judgment Day, only to be exposed as liars. That's why the Bible says it's with the heart one must believe. It must be real in the heart. The key issue is all about the heart. So let me ask you, what does your mouth reveal about the treasure box of your heart? It ever remains true Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What say you? What say you? Let's stand and have our closing song.